All right, we're, we're in Mark again this morning. Um, we are finishing up for starting next week because I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, Christmas is coming. And uh, next week is the beginning of our Advent celebration. So we're going to focus the whole month of December on traditional themes of hope, of peace, joy, love, and of Jesus. Um, and so we're going to take a pause for the month of December from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but we're going to finish up this morning in uh, chapter 3, verse 20 through 35. That's where we're going to be. That's where our uh, journey through Mark has brought us today. Chapter 3, verse 20 through 35. And today is one of those days where you wonder why you decide to preach verse by verse through books. Because you get to really weird passages. And if I was, if I was a, uh, a, more, uh, a lesser speaker and preacher and pastor, I would just ask Chad to teach this and walk away. But here we are, chapter 3, starting in verse 20, going to verse 35. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. See what I mean? Challenging passages today. As we consider the Gospel of Mark and, and all that he's revealing to us about the nature and the character of Jesus, his mission of redemption, what might God be saying to us today? I've, I've arranged my, my thoughts around these three headings, and they're not really all that tied together. I'm sorry, uh, but we're going to make this work. The first, the first thing I, I, I saw was a family affair in the first two verses. They, Jesus goes home with his disciples. You remember last week he called the 12 apostles to himself and sent them out. He, he called them, remember, we said to be near him and to go for him. And we said that's the same calling for all of us. When God calls people to himself through faith, when people become Christians, it is a calling to be near him in fellowship and then to be sent out for him and by him in ministry. So after all that hoopla up on the mountain, they go back home, presumably to Capernaum, to Simon's house, and there we have the crowd again, always the crowd and we mention over and over again in Mark, the crowd is not necessarily a sign of great advances. It's the, crowd is, the crowd is also, um, often, often a sign of hindrance. That the crowd is in the way of the work that Jesus is doing. Kind of stopping him from performing the work that he's doing. And there they are again. So disruptive were they in the home that they couldn't even eat. They couldn't even sit down for a meal together. There were people everywhere. And when his family heard about it, his brother, his brothers and his mother, when they heard about what was happening, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. It was embarrassing to them. 
Mary's son had become a zealot of sorts. The, the brothers of Jesus, they saw what he was doing and they were, they were unsettled by it. It's an interesting idea. They, as I was reading through, you, you, have to, you have to come to grips with this truth. They weren't sure yet who he was. You see that? They weren't quite sure yet who he was. And we might think that because they had grown up with him, that they might have seen his perfection. They might have seen him in the power of his teaching as a young man when he was about his father's business. They might have seen the way that he interacted with the world around him and they might have already determined that he was the son of God. But at this point, the brothers of Jesus, they're not convinced he's in complete control of his faculties. They think he's out of his mind. Now, the interesting note here, something that is surprising to me, how, didn't, how did they not know? How do you not know that? In a family of multiple children, isn't that like always the running joke? I mean, my poor sisters had to live in my shadow, and I was the perfect child. And to this day, and I say that, but, but to this day, my parents will tell you that I was the easy one, right? And, and it's the running joke. Well, yeah, well, Matt always did everything right. But, uh, yeah. I don't have that problem in my house. That is, that is actually not going on among my children. Nobody says that about anybody, except for Evie, right? Evie always, <laughs> this is a funny story. One of them likes to remind me that they're my favorite, and I say to them, I have no favorites except for Evie. And just so, just so everybody is clear. But, but how do they not know? How do they not see it? And, and what, I, what I was studying and praying through and thinking about is that this exposes for us a presupposition that we all carry. We tend to think that if we can just educate people, they'll get it. That if they could just be close to the information, then it'll work. Right? If we... This, this, this was brought home to me yesterday. I sent a text to Mike Guile, one of our elders. I came across an old catechism book from my great uncle from 1934 in the Lutheran church that he was in. And actually, as I was digging through, I think I found his father or grandfather's catechism book from the late 1850s, right? Written in German, so I can't understand it. I might need some help. But, but the, one, the one that I have for my great uncle was in English. And I went through and I saw the check marks. And I realized this man was catechized into the Lutheran church. But I knew him. He wasn't catechized into Jesus he knew all the right answers. And if you've ever read through the Heidelberg Catechism, it is beautiful. And it is a wonderful summary of rich and deep doctrinal truth. But it's possible to go through all the classes and still not know Jesus. Okay, now, now I'm getting close to home because many of us grew up in churches very similarly, didn't we? And we knew all the stuff, but our hearts weren't made alive in Christ by the power of the Spirit. We, had, we didn't have real faith in Jesus as our Savior. We just knew the right things about him. These brothers of Jesus apparently knew a lot of good things, and they were in close proximity to him. But they weren't yet convinced of his identity. And why is that? 
Well, it reminds me of that passage in Mark, uh, Matthew 16. You remember that passage where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, listen, some say you're John the Baptist, the reincarnation of it. Some say you're, you're a prophet. Some say you're like Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. You know why he was blessed? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. There's something really powerful here that we need to wrestle with. People don't come to saving faith in Jesus just because they have all the, all the pieces of information in front of them. It takes the breathing of the Holy Spirit to cause their dead hearts to beat. And what that means for us is that we should be lifted of the burden because you can't make somebody trust Jesus. We need to be lifted from the burden and driven to our knees to pray that God would do what only he can do. Some important stuff here. But his brothers didn't know who he was. They saw him as an embarrassment. He's bringing dishonor on the family name. Any of you, any of you been in that position? Some of you were the first in your families to come to saving faith in Jesus and your in-laws and your relatives didn't know what to do with you. You weren't even allowed to come to Thanksgiving dinner because they were afraid of you. Right? You know exactly what's going on. They didn't understand. And there was in the room these scribes who had come down from Jerusalem and they weren't coming because they had heard about Jesus and wanted to know him more. They were coming because they had heard about him and they were seeking to kill him. They were sent to catch him, to ensnare him, to trap him in what he was teaching. And he offers the advice on the, on the house divided. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. They saw what he was doing. They, remember what he was doing? He was preaching with power and authority. He was healing sicknesses. He was releasing people from demonic oppression. That new kingdom power we're talking about. The new king arrived and he started to flex new kingdom power over the kingdom of this world. And there was no denying it. Because it wasn't subjective. It wasn't like when he said your sins are forgiven and you can't really tell. It was the guy who was lame is walking. The sick are healed. The demon possessed are free and full of life and joy. The testimony of the power of the new kingdom was in the people that the new kingdom had set free. And the, disciples, the scribes came to catch him and they couldn't get past the fact that he had power. You could, you could deny where it came from and you could offer competing theories, but at the end of the day, like, like the man born blind in John chapter 9, look, I don't know who he is. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. And here I am. I've been changed by this guy. He has power over these things. So they determined that with his power, he must be harnessing the power of the enemy. Wow. They said, Jesus the power you're displaying, you're just possessed by a demon and you're harnessing the dark, you're harnessing the dark arts, the dark magic. You are, you are leveraging that against what's happening. And Jesus addresses the ridiculous nature of this claim. And he says, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? 
if Satan, the enemy of God, is possessing somebody and he casts himself out, what's left? How, how does that even work? That's so logically, that doesn't make sense. And then he said, a kingdom divided can't stand. In a vast kingdom, I think the, the annals of history are full of places where warring factions in, in certain kingdoms rose to power and disintegrated the kingdom. A nation, a family, a kingdom. If, if the constituents, if the family members, if the church members aren't in unity and getting along, and if warring factions rise up inside of them seeking to push and pull and leverage authority, then it doesn't stand. It collapses. How is it, he's asking them, how is it that, that the enemy is going to drive himself out by his own Power, that doesn't make any sense at all. If Satan is divided, he won't be able to stand. If he's using his own strength and power to fight himself, eventually the power runs out, right? If I am warring against myself, eventually I am depleted of energy. That's like a Ponzi scheme. I have a note here. See also Social Security circa 2035, right? Eventually you run out of resource, if the enemy is warring against himself, fighting against himself, eventually he runs out of resource and energy and collapses. It doesn't make any sense. No, no, no. He says, listen, my power over the demons was proof of the, my ministry's validity. Right? In fact, that was what one commentator said. Jesus had broken into the domain of Satan. And he was flexing his muscle over him. He was showing his power and authority over the enemy. His power over evil spirits was evidence that he was not working by the power of Satan, but he was triumphing over the power of Satan. It was a whole different sign. And then he says, look, the strong man, the strong man must be bound up by another man in order to have his house raided, which is weird imagery for sure. But in the context of what's going on, let's, let's consider what he's saying. Okay. Jesus had come and entered into the home, the domain of a strong man, of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, who holds humanity in his tyrannical grip. Okay. We, we believe that to be true based on the scriptures. Right. He told the religious people their father was Satan. You're sons of your father, the devil, right? He holds them in captivity. Jesus enters the domain of the enemy, of Satan, and his miracles and his signs, the healing, the deliverance, the speaking with authority, demonstrated that he had bound Satan. The intruder, in order to plunder the house, has to deal with the guy who lives there. Right? If you try to come into my house and plunder my house, I'm going to stop you. Actually, that's not true. There are certain rooms you can have your, your take of. That disgusting playroom in my basement, you take everything. Everything. I don't care. The storage room, take it all. I don't, I don't mind. But 
You're not walking out of my home with valuable resources or my family without me putting up a fight. And in order for you to get them, you're going to have to incapacitate me in some way. That's what he's saying. Satan holds humanity under his domain in order to get to them, to free them and liberate them. Jesus is binding the strong man and he is demonstrating that he is stronger still than the strong man who owns this house or lives in this house. And his demonstration of liberation when he sets the captives free, when he heals people, when he forgives sins, that is a demonstration that he is stronger than Satan and has bound him and he is now free to plunder his house. And what does he mean when he says plunder? He does not mean he's taking the fine china. He means that he's liberating humanity. He's setting them free from the law of sin and death. This new kingdom is coming, and he's bringing new life to people. And he said, he said, listen, if I was doing all this by the enemy's power, the enemy couldn't stand. But as it stands, I am a stronger man, and I've entered into the house of a strong man, and I've bound him up. And my acts of deliverance and healing are demonstrations that this kingdom that I bring is stronger than all the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Satan, the enemy. And at this point, I am free because I bound him by my power and authority. I am free to plunder at will. And by plunder, he means carry us off the spoils of his victory. As he rescues us and saves us and heals us and delivers us. Now, he says, verse 28, truly I say to you, keep in mind, he's talking about plundering the house, taking the people. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and all, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, verse 29 gets tricky because he says, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, there's no hope for you. We'll get to that in just a second. But let's not let the tricky, confusing nature of 29 rob us of the joy of 28 because what he's telling us right there is crystal clear. There is no sin that is outside the reach of the grace of Jesus. All sins will be forgiven. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you need to know and be reminded today that you cannot outsin the grace of Jesus. You need to hear it once again that your past cannot define you. Who you were and what you did cannot define you in the eyes of Jesus. Your guilt and your shame that you carry from a life previous from a decision you made 30, 40, 50 years ago, that guilt and that shame is swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ and all of our sins can be forgiven. He's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1.9 tells us. Set yourself free. Some of you are still carrying burdens that you're not being asked to carry. Release yourself in Christ. Be set free. All sins are to be forgiven. All of them. There's a word in there for those of us who think we have to clean ourselves up in order to come to God. That you'd come to him if you could just get this thing taken care of. 
You got a problem with the bottle and, it, it, and it's an addiction and you can't shake it. And someday when you complete the course and fix that, then you'll come to Jesus. You're an angry, rage-filled individual. You've got issues from your childhood you're still dealing with. And someday when you fix that, then you'll come to Jesus. No, no, no. no that's not how it works. The grace of Jesus isn't held back waiting for you to fix yourself. No, he's going to forgive you and wipe you clean and welcome you into his family by no merit of your own. Not because you're clean or desirable, but because of what he can do in you and through you. It's odd imagery, the, the strong man being bound. He says, look, here it is. All sins are forgiven, all blasphemies, however they're uttered. But he issues a word of caution. To who? In the immediate context, it's really important because I've, I've met Christians through the years who have wrestled with this and like painstakingly wrestled with, have I committed an unpardonable sin? Did I, did I do something that was out of bounds? We have to go back. Who's he talking to? In the immediate context, he's talking to the scribes. He's talking to the religious elite who came from Jerusalem to catch him. In the immediate, that's who he's dealing with. Out of there, we can draw principles for application for sure. But who is he talking to? He's talking to the scribes. And he says, there is a blasphemy possible that won't be forgiven. And you say, hold on, Matt. You just said everything is forgivable. Yes. Every sin, yes. The grace of Jesus covers all sin. Absolutely. That's what we believe about the power of the gospel. Yes. Then what is he talking about here? Well, I would say that just to make a good observation, he's talking about people whose hearts have been so hardened that they observed the works of Jesus and rejected him for who he was. They saw the evidence with their own eyes. They saw the lame man walking, the blind man with sight, the oppressed man set free. They saw all the power and all the authority that he displayed. They watched it all happen and they said, nope, He's not the Son of God. They hardened their hearts. And in that sense, that is the unpardonable offense, isn't it? Somebody who will not yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Through the years, there's been a lot of suggestions, hasn't there, about what is this sin that is unpardonable? Some of you were taught it was suicide, right? Any of you? Some of you were taught that. Some have been taught it's murder. Some were taught it was adultery. We, all you need to do is scan through the Bible to find examples of people who committed all those things and were still wondrously, gloriously received into the kingdom. But we need to go back to the text. What can we see clearly in this passage? The religious elite observed Jesus with his great power and they hardened their hearts. Rather than receive him for who he says he was and demonstrated he was, they rejected him. And there it is. Now, if you're here today and you're somebody who has battled through the years with wondering, did I just commit the unpardonable sin? As though it was like a, like a boundary line. You know, like, we, we tend to think of it, those of us who are prone to anxiety over these passages, we tend to think about it like a, like a sideline on a football field, right? 
We're running down the sideline, wide open. We're going to score an 80-yard touchdown. But I happen to step out of bounds at the 40. And the referee comes up and says, hey, don't mean to interrupt your celebration down here, but you were out of bounds back there. So there's all this glory that you've got going on, the celebration, the touchdown dance, you come into Sports Center, all that. No, you, you actually, it was just a first down. Go back. You've stepped out of bounds. I wish I could help you, but the rules are the rules. Some of us have this opinion that we come to Jesus through faith in Christ and then we wander so far over the edge that we, we get up and we just commit this foul and he's like, oh, no, that's it. You stepped right out of bounds at that one place that I told you about and you're done now. I wish I could help you, but the rules are the rules. And I'm a rule follower. I like rules. It's easy. But that's not the point of what he's trying to say. What he's saying is that all sins are forgiven. But the one who doesn't receive forgiveness is not the one who was a murderer, not the one who was an adulterer, not the one who had an addiction, not the one who was full of rage and violent and a drunkard and an angry man. No, the person who doesn't receive the forgiveness of Jesus is the one who in his pride hardens his heart against Jesus. And in that case, that is the unforgivable sin. But it's not, please hear me, it's not a litmus test of your status because we all hardened our hearts against Jesus until by the power of the gospel he broke our hard hearts. Did you turn to Jesus the first time you heard the gospel? Because I didn't. First time I hardened my heart. But in the end, if our posture against, to God is not one of yielded submission, in, in response, in, great, in, in thankful response to who he is as our Savior and King. If it is a, a closed-hearted, rebellious, proud, and arrogant response, then, then yeah, forgiveness isn't for us. The final passage I entitled, Mom, He's Doing It Again. You all have that kid, don't you? Would you make him stop, Mom? He's doing it again. He's making that noise. He's doing that thing. Someone's going to see him. Please, please, for the love, make him stop. While he's addressing the crowds, teaching them, his brothers and his mom come back, and they send a messenger in to get him. Would you go tell him that we're out here waiting? My mom used to do that. My mom, I was, I was notoriously late when she would come pick me up from stuff at school. And rather than get out and storm in and yell at me, she would send a messenger. You tell him that he's get out here. So I'd have a friend come in, your mom's on it again, dude. She's really upset. You better get out there. You too. So I'm, and she would see me coming from across the parking lot. I have become her in so many ways. It is clear. It's clear here. They don't understand fully who he is. They send a message to him. Hey, we want him out here. Would you please get him. Somebody lets him know, and in front of the crowd, he asks this really telling question. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, he didn't forget their identity. It's not like he's having some kind of temporary amnesia. Wait, wait who? Who are you talking about? Mary who? No, no. He, he knew who they were. He was saying something different. He said, who is it that is my family? Who is it that is close enough to me that I have this responsibility to? Who is it that is united with me together the way flesh and blood unites people together? And then he said, it is the one who does the will of God. 
And he looks at the crowd of the disciples that are gathered. You are my brothers. You are my sisters. You are my parents. Those of you who do the will of God. Who are my mother and my brothers? Mark is highlighting something really important for us. Jesus makes a distinction between those who are his true family and those who are not. Here in this room, gathered around me, this teaching point is clear. He says, it is not my birth family, my genetic nuclear family, that determines my family relationships, but instead, all who do the will of my Father. Those, those are my people. Okay. How do you think that made Mary and the brothers feel? What do you mean I'm not your family? I brought you into this world. I can take you out. What do you mean? I carried you for nine months. Are you not aware of the chaos that was? Right? All that I went through for you? What do you mean? I'm not your family. He's not, he's not denigrating in any way the contribution that Mary made. And he's not, he's not saying, he's not being disrespectful to her. He's saying something that's very true. That those who are part of the true family of God are those who submit to Jesus as Lord and live in that new kingdom under his authority and do the will of God. Those are the people whose lives have been changed by the power of the gospel. Because faith without works is dead, right? But saving faith results in the good works that God has prepared for us. Gathered in this room here, you are. You are my brothers and my sisters in the Lord. And my, my nuclear family, they all, they all got smart and got out of the Northeast. Do you know this? Did I tell you this? Everybody left Pennsylvania and they all moved south. I used to be five hours away from my closest relatives. I'm like 12 hours away now. It's forever. They're all warm and happy and smiling all the time. right? But here's the point. In many ways, through the years, you have been my family. You've been my aunts, my uncles, some of you my parents or grandparents through the seasons. You've been my brothers and sisters. You've been my kids' aunts and uncles, my cousins. You've been my extended family. And the unity that we share through the blood of Jesus in many ways, and I'm not trying to disrespect family relationships, in many ways the unity we share through the blood of Christ is deeper and stronger than the DNA that we share with our brothers and sisters in this world. And some of you who come to faith in Jesus out of a family that there's no other Christians in your family, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because the support network, the, support network, the encouragement is here. The fellowship and the help is here. The people to move your piano when you have to move are here. You're not going to ask your stinking brother-in-law to come do that. Mine won't be able to help anyway. No, it's here. Here is the family. He says, those of you who do the will of God, you are my brothers and my sisters. And he said that because you know, they came and they asked, wait, send them out here. We want to take them home. All right, so What? It's a great question. A little challenging one today, don't you think? What does all that mean? How am I going to apply that? I'm not Jesus standing in front of an angry mob. You might be angry. You don't look that angry. 
I made you angry last week with my cheap shots at the Giants. I'm sorry about that, but and the Yankees, but uh, but it's okay. We can be friends. We're family, right? All right. I'm thinking. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to. One. Here it is. <laughs> Number one. I'm blown away by by Jesus's family here, for this reason. They were so close to him, so familiar with him. They had seen him with their own eyes heard his teaching with their own ears, been astonished with all the religious leaders when he was, was astounding them in the temple, and yet they didn't believe in him. Yet. Yet. Don't forget, they came around. Don't forget that, that book that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote. It's pretty clear. He might have been on the outside saying, Mom, he's doing it again. Can you get him over here? You better go in and take care of him. He's embarrassing us. He turned and became an amazing servant of the church of God. But here's what I was struck by. The deciding factor in a person's faith is not their proximity to good teaching. The deciding factor is not education. You can be catechized into a church and not into Jesus. The deciding factor of a person's faith is that the Holy Spirit of God has breathed on a dead heart and made it beat again. Opened blind eyes and let them see again. Healed the sick and the lame and let them dance and leap again. That is the deciding factor. And that should do two things. That should lift us of a burden. Because it is not unto us to produce that kind of fruit. We can't. We are messengers of the gospel. We bear witness to what Jesus has done. And we tell people where they can find it. But we can't make hearts beat again. It should free us of a burden. And it should drive us to our knees to pray that God would do what only he can do. And that he would attend to our evangelistic conversations with his Holy Spirit so that fruit would be brought. But people don't come to faith just because the argument and presentation is so slick. You don't argue people into the kingdom. Jesus brings them in. He births them into his kingdom. Secondly today, the unforgivable sin has long been a sticky subject for Christians. What does Jesus really say here? Jesus says that all sins can be forgiven and all blasphemies, everything. The only caveat he suggests, and don't get too far away from what's going on here in Mark chapter 3, the only caveat he suggests is the example of someone who sees and hears and understands and receives all that's happening and hardens their heart and rejects the gospel. That person, in the pride and arrogance of their hard heart, is not willing to receive the grace but don't ever lose sight of the amazing promise in verse 28 that all sins are forgiven in Christ and every blasphemy that's uttered. And thirdly today, the notion of family in the, is a huge New Testament theme, isn't it? Especially in Paul's writings. It'd be unwise for us not to at least summarize once again that the bond that we share, the unity we share in Christ through his blood, those of us who've been saved by his grace and through faith, those of us who do the will of God is a familial bond. And in many cases, it is closer and more enduring than even the bond we have with our immediate families. And there's a responsibility on the church of Jesus to treat one another, older women as mothers and older men as fathers, younger women as sisters and younger men as brothers. 
we are called to this family as a place of priority to provide for it, to serve it, to sacrifice for it, to pray for it, to give of ourselves to secure its peace and growth. This, this is our family together. And in a world starved for relationships, I believe the way that we love one another is still the most powerful testimony of whose we are. Jesus said, the way the world knows we're his disciples is in our bumper stickers, our really cool t-shirts, or your Instagram feed. The way the world knows you're his disciples is the way you love one another. Selflessly, sacrificially, bending over backwards, so radical that they don't have a category for it because you're treating somebody who's not part of your immediate family as though they were your closest brother. And that blows their minds. They don't know how to deal with that. But it gives them hope that there's a place for them too. The church is a family. May God help us to, to demonstrate that well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work you're doing in us and through us. Thank you for the gifts of grace you've provided. Thank you for your word and its power in our lives. It's enduring power throughout the generations. Thank you for the way it feeds and nurtures and grows the church. Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of people who demonstrate well the family of God here in our midst. That you would show us what it is to sacrificially love and serve one another to yield ourselves to each other's needs, to spur each other on to love and to good works, to faith and repentance. Lord, I pray for those who have wrestled for many years with the, un the unpardonable sin. I pray that you would help them to see with clarity today what Jesus was really talking about. Lord, that our hard hearts, our arrogance and rebellion against God is what stands between us and forgiveness and nothing else. Lord, humble our hearts before you. I pray for those here who've, who have maybe given in to this, the enemy's lie that their sin is so much that it keeps them from God's grace. Remind them today, God, that that's not true. That all sins can be forgiven in Christ. That all blasphemies that are uttered can be forgiven in Christ. And I pray that you bring them low, bring them to a place of humility so they can receive you as Savior and King. And Lord, I pray that you'd remind us once again that it is not education or presentation that makes converts, but the work of the Spirit moving in the hearts of people. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to have free reign to move in the hearts of our congregation. Bring people to repentance, to faith, to conviction of sin, to excitement and growth for the future. God, I pray that you do your work in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.